the Medical School HQ podcast, session number 68. What our community loves is people who go out and make the world a better place. And, and I, I use the phrase branching out. And I love it when individuals branch out and go outside their comfort zone. Hey, this is Z-Dog MD, rapper, physician, legendary turntable health revolutionary, and part-time gardener. And you're listening to the Medical School HQ podcast, hosted by the irredeemably awesome Ryan Gray. Welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Ryan Gray. And I believe that competition amongst your pre-med and medical student peers is detrimental to becoming a great physician. In this podcast, we show you how collaboration, hard work, and honesty are critical to becoming a superior physician in today's healthcare environment. Hey folks, before we get into it with our guest today, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by freemcatgift.com. At freemcatgift.com, you can download a brand new 30-plus page report on the most important pieces of MCAT information that you need to know. Take your knowledge of the MCAT to the next level by going to freemcatgift.com and downloading the free report today. All right, in today's podcast, my guest is Dr. Benjamin Chan, Assistant Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah an attending physician at the University of Utah Neuropsychiatric Institute. Dr. Chan also hosts his own podcast titled Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, which you can find on iTunes. During this podcast, you will hear Dr. Chan share his thoughts on the changing landscape and trends of the medical school admissions process. We'll talk about non-traditional students, and why requirements aren't standardized between all medical schools. We'll talk about all those topics and many, many more. Dr. Chan, thank you for taking some time to talk to us today. Can you share your story of how you chose to pursue medicine? Sure. Well, yeah, it's a good story. So um, growing up, I, uh, you know, I just loved arguing with my parents. I took debate classes in high school. Uh, I was really, uh, had a really good experience on the debate team. And so I just naturally thought I was going to be a lawyer. So for the longest time, um, I was going to, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then, um, when I went to college, I, uh, I took a bunch of political science classes, uh, liked them, but did not love them. Um, and then I went on a two year Mormon mission and I really enjoyed helping people. And I just kind of had this uh, epiphanous moment that, you know what, I want to help people. So after I got back off my mission, I switched from pre-law to pre-med, kind of took all the necessary classes, got really involved in, you know, all the different activities that that pre-meds engage in, you know, hospital translation. I was a resident assistant for my dorm. I was a tour guide. I did a bunch of uh, environmental, you know, issues, did tutoring. I, I went to college out at Stanford. California, so there's lots of opportunity to do these things. And then I started applying to medical school. And uh, during the entire time I was in California, I maintained my Utah residency, which is incredibly important <laughs> uh, uh, for those out there. Um, you know, um, you know, medical schools we do not discriminate on the basis of race, gender, ethnicity, religion, politics, 
socioeconomic status, disability status, but we do discriminate based on <laughs> state residency status. So um, I got into the University of Utah School of Medicine. So I actually, uh, um, uh, this was, you know, this was my home. I grew up in Salt Lake City, so it was natural to just come back here. So I went to med school back here, had a great time, and I just thought, you know, whatever the sense I decided to switch to medicine, I was going to be a pediatrician. Kind of the same thing with like being a lawyer. I was just like, oh, I'm going to be a pediatrician, be a pediatrician. So during the first two years of med school, I was very gung ho about pediatrics, and then during third year, when you uh, hit the uh, you know third year rotations on inpatient wards, I uh, I had my pediatrics rotation, and I didn't love it. It was it was rough. A lot of pediatrics is little babies, and I like babies. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I. Uh, I just found that they couldn't tell you what was wrong. You hold a stethoscope to their chest, they cry, you know, and uh, it was just not, I just thought it would be more young kids and teenagers. And there was a handful of young kids and teenagers that kind of drifted through uh, the pediatric service. So uh, one of my mentors he, at the time, he said, like, well, if you really like interacting with young kids and teenagers, you should look at child psychiatry. And I had never even thought about that before. So again, it was kind of this epiphanous moment. I did a rotation in child psych, and I just really loved it. Um, it was everything that I liked about peds. Um, you know, talking to teens, talking to young kids, playing with them, getting to know them real well, helping them in a, in a, in a different way, admittedly, from pediatrics. So I switched, and I became I, I, uh, I decided to become a child psychiatrist. So I entered the match. You have to, to become a child psychiatrist. You have to do uh, an adult residency. So I matched at George Washington University in downtown Washington, D.C., I did my adult training, and then uh, a child psychiatry fellowship is two years. And so at the end of my adult training, I matched at University of Maryland in Baltimore. So I kind of stayed in the East Coast um, and, you know, lo- learned to love, you know, like working with kids. And I, I loved the D.C. area. Uh, but because of family reasons, after I graduated, I moved back here to Salt Lake City. So is this kind of what you're looking for, Ryan? My my kind of veering off script? Or yeah, just- no, that's that's great. And yeah. and. I, I I do want to bring up one question. You mentioned sure. you started off as as this poli sci going to be a lawyer, and uh-huh. you had this epiphany that you wanted to help people. Uh-huh. Now I always make the argument that just because you want to help people doesn't mean you should go to medical school. Where where was that extra step of helping people plus the medicine aspect? Where did that come into play? I think it was, well, on my mission, we did a lot of uh, volunteer work with different uh, organizations, uh, homeless shelters. I served my mission in France, so je parle français, moi. Um, so homeless shelters, nursing homes, some uh, like the French equivalent of orphanages, things like that. And I just loved like that hands-on helping. Um, and I can totally understand what you're saying is just because you want to help people does not necessarily mean medicine's the right path for you because you can go into nursing or far, a pharmacy school or, or physical therapy. There's all these different, you, different you could help, you could help people as a lawyer. Yes. Oh, uh, that is true. <laughs> I just found it was a much more direct route of helping people. I, 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 uh, I don't know. I just, yeah, I just felt that, well, so after my mission, I kind of took upon myself to shadow different doctors and also lawyers and, I, you know, I, I know that's like, it's been 10, 15 years, but uh, there's a lot of paperwork <laughs> involved with being a lawyer. And I'm sure it's like the paperwork with all the changes in healthcare have also, you know, there's a lot of paperwork in medicine, but I just got a sense when I shadowed the physicians, they were happier. They really enjoyed that. They had that more of that patient interaction. Whereas with attorneys, it was a little bit more, I mean, the system is set up to be a little bit more adversarial. Um, 
and like with courts and things like that. I, I don't know. It just didn't really, I don't know. Just, it didn't resonate with me. So okay. the, the Eureka aha moment is, is like, I just liked helping people uh, more directly, getting my hands dirty and uh, just helping them in that way. Does, does that help answer your question? Yeah. And, yeah. and you did your due diligence with the shadowing of both lawyers and doctors to figure out exactly what you would want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which is, um, which is what and, students need to do. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's why I always like. Well, that's well, uh, that's part of our criteria for our medical school now is like we we strongly encourage people to shadow physician because you know I think people have this perception from watching Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs, and you know like when you shadow a doctor, kind of see the lifestyle and and the good and the bad. You know, it's not all guts and glory. It's a lot of it's paperwork, a lot of it's dealing with insurance companies. Um, a lot of it's kind of working within a bureaucratic system. So you have to be prepared for that. I think a lot of students are surprised about how, how regulated, how, how much training goes into, uh, you know, being a physician and all the different aspects of it. So awesome. I'm glad you mentioned that. So for, for you listening, just because you like Grey's Anatomy doesn't mean you're going (laughs) to like being a doctor. (laughs) Correct. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So. so so from what you just told us, it sounded like your path into medicine was was kind of just easy and you got into all the residencies you wanted and did everything you wanted. Were, were there any hiccups along the way where you kind of struggled and had to figure stuff out? Um, I, well, well, during medical school, like switching from pediatrics to psychiatry is a big jump. And um, I remember that you know, like I was single at the time. And like, when you start telling people like, Oh, I want to be a psychiatrist. That's kind of a turnoff at parties. You understand what I'm saying? Um, and so I think I went through this kind of crisis moment, uh, kind of existential, like, you know, what am I going to do? Like, you know, I started medicine to do this and, and now I'm jumping and, you know, I had to have conversations with my family and they were very supportive. Um, but it's just that, you know, when you kind of have this goal and then that goal kind of, uh, goes away and you're kind of in that uncertain territory about what path you should find after that. And I kind of like to tell like the applicants uh, or when, when you go to med school, like choosing, uh, choosing a field is like choosing a major, but it's, it's very different in medical school because you kind of pick at the end of your training. And that's one of the criticisms that I have about our, like the a traditional healthcare model is that, you know, you have to really kind of figure out, you know, at the, like, you know, at the end of your third year, but like a lot of the students know ahead of time and it's very disconcerting. You know, I remember my classmates, like a few of my classmates just knew what they wanted to be. And during the first year, they started establishing mentor mentors and started doing all this extra shadowing and they started doing research. And I was like, Oh, I think I'm doing peds. And then that started to kind of melt away during third year. So that, that was kind of a crisis moment for me is like, what do I do? I felt like, Oh my gosh, like my, cause I had roommates at the time. One of my roommates just knew from day one, he's going to be an ophthalmologist. And he had had all these letters of recommendation lined up. He'd done all this research and he, he matched an ophthalmology, he became an ophthalmologist. And so I just had this crisis moment. Like, I don't know what I want to be. So, um, and that's why I really rely on mentors. I mean, at our, our medical school now, we're, we're, we're creating uh, new programs called core faculty to kind of help the med students out to be more, more visible presence for mentors. I can't emphasize enough having mentors in medical school really helps out because, like, you know, I think there's a lot of med students that know what they're going to do, but a lot of them have no idea. And so um, that was kind of my crisis moment. Okay. And, and that's a, a big one because I think a lot of people will – a lot of students will continue to push along. They say, I've gone this far and, and I've gotten this experience. I might as well just keep going. But yeah. it it's, it's, uh, takes a lot of guts to stop and say, no, this is not what I want to do. 
And something else that I think fascinating is is that even in residency programs, I didn't experience this myself, but so I went into general psychiatry and in my program at George Washington, we started off with four interns and the second year we expanded up to eight. And where did those other four come from? They came from other residency programs. And so some of my classmates at that level became disillusioned after they picked a residency in OB-GYN or family practice, and they wanted to switch. And you, you talk about these crisis moments. I mean, you have to have those really uncomfortable conversations with your residency program director and say, you know what, even though I matched here and I said all those things on my interview day, I actually don't want to be a family practice doc. I want to try psychiatry. And it's, it happens a lot more than I think medical students realize. Like we kind of view this match as the final absolute authority, and for many, you know, for many people it is. But there is a fair amount of switching that goes on within the residency programs um, as people try to figure out who they want to be and what kind of doctor they want to be. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it's not the norm, but it it can happen. <laughs> so it, it, yeah, very true. A little while ago, you mentioned how at University of Utah, you're kind of adding that requirement in almost of shadowing a physician to make sure mm-hmm. that, that these applicants know what it's like to be a physician besides what they're watching on, on TV. Why, is, why isn't the requirements for medical schools standardized between all the schools? I think that's one of the biggest issues. I, I get students asking me, does this school take this class and does this school take this and what credits and, and every school is different. Why is that? Um, I think schools are fiercely proud institutions um, and there's a lot of tradition interwoven in this, but it's really, really hard to tell a medical school you should have this criteria, you should have that criteria. The national organization, the AAMC, um, they have guidelines, but they kind of treat all the different schools like states, right? So, like, the AAMC is kind of the federal government, and the different medical schools are like states, and every state has their own kind of experiment going on. Um, and, you know, my own personal view is, like, for our criteria, we try to have, we try to be as straightforward as possible. Um, we ask for research experience. We ask for community service. We ask for leadership experience, community um, uh, see, physician shadowing, the shadow of a doc, shadow physician, and then be exposed to patients. And those are kind of our five core criteria outside MCAT and GPA. Um, different medical schools I've talked to, and they kind of look for the same things, and they really like our website because we kind of spell it out. Um, but I think a lot of schools aren't as front with their um, up with their criteria because you know everyone's a little bit different. Someone maybe excels in research and just gets published several times. And maybe they don't have as much community service, but I think schools kind of like casting a really wide net um, to kind of kind of direct them to their own institution. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, Ryan. I I often wonder the same thing, um, but I, I think there's also this national mentality of that a lot of students are just looking to check the box, and if they just kind of put their criteria out there, and then students just kind of check the boxes and do everything, and then they don't get in, I think that leads to a lot of uh, frustration. So I think sometimes medical schools are very hesitant to put out their criteria just because I think uh, applicants kind of look at it as checking the box. And, and medical schools, I can tell you, hate students who just check the box. They like to see the passion. They like to see the determination, the motivation. And so I think that's why they're vague sometimes on their criteria. And and that's the perfect answer. It, mm-hmm. We try to tell students all the time there's there's no checklist to get into medical school each each student is telling their own story and that's what the medical schools are looking at mm-hmm. and so that's that's, that's yeah. perfect yeah you just said 
uh, one of the requirements that you're looking for in the list of requirements is the shadowing. And then you mentioned separately patient exposure. Can you help the listener clarify what those two things mean? So for us, physician shadowing is exactly that. You're shadowing a doctor. It's more of a passive activity. You're in the room with the doctor. You're watching him interact with patients. You're you're seeing him return phone calls. You see him fill out paperwork for insurance companies. You see him meet with families to to break bad news or good news or explain a procedure. Um, So that is shadowing a doctor, getting kind of sense of what the lifestyle is like, what what it actually means to be a doctor. Uh, For us, patient exposure means getting your hands dirty. It doesn't mean necessarily that the doctor's in the room. Um, and you're interacting with patients. And, and so we look at patient exposure as incredibly valuable. And uh, I'm talking like, you know, skilled nursing facilities. I don't know a single sniff that, you know, if a student wants to volunteer and just interact with patients and help, help them out, that they would turn you down. Talk about hospice. Um, we have these really great programs here in Utah where, uh, um, you know, individuals who are not necessarily made to a hospice facility, but they prefer to, you know, um, you know, pass away at home, sometimes they don't have family members. And so I, I know these hospice companies that are always looking for like uh, applicants or individuals who don't mind visiting someone who doesn't have family and just kind of talk and get to know them. Um, talking like uh, group homes, you know, for children with developmental delays or disabilities or autism or things like that. They're always looking for uh, individuals to kind of interact with them. Um, respite care, uh, inter- you know, again, t- helping out a family who just needs a break from whatever's going on because they're primary caregivers and and, and students can go in there and help. So um, when I say patient exposure, people immediately think of hospitals and clinics, and that is a great way, um, you know, and like, you know, like orderlies or working in the OR or, or, or things like that. But I also really advocate you know, expanding, get to know patients from many different walks of life. Um, so that's how we kind of see patient exposure. And we really try to separate that um, uh, because there's something that just happens. There's that empathy, you know, um, when you just interact with someone who's really in need. Um, and people can do this through their jobs, you know. So if you're a CNA or EMT, that's great patient exposure experience. So it's not necessarily with a doctor in the room. So Perfect. So in your role at the University of Utah, you see a lot of trends in the admissions process and what's going on uh, with the AAMC and the new MCAT coming out. Can you give us a general overview for a freshman or sophomore right now in undergrad? What what are some of the trends in the admissions process? What kind of things should they start thinking of right now? Yeah, well, this you know, and then this might be unique to our med school. The way I think about it, and this is perfect we're doing the podcast right now, is that um, applying to medical school, again in medical school, it is really like the Olympics, right? And so the way I look at it is, and I kind of interwoven this in the discussions I give when I visit all the undergrads, the different colleges, universities, is that you can train independently for the Olympics, and if you just have this natural God-given talent, uh, more power to you. Um, and, you know, you do see people like that who go in the Olympics and have no, tr- who have like very little coaching or training and they do really well. But the vast majority of athletes that compete in the Olympics, they have coaches and trainers along the way. And what I'm referring to is for the medical students is the pre-medical offices. Um, I have noticed a national trend because of the specialization of uh, different schools because of how harder and harder it is getting in is that more and more pre-medical offices are taking a prominent role. And I've, especially here in Utah and Idaho and a lot of the schools we interact with in the West, um, I've seen a much more robust pre-medical office. And what I mean by pre-medical office is 
you know, at the start, you know, if you're a freshman or sophomore in college, they're meeting with them. They're kind of going over class schedules. And most of these offices provide really valuable services. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, they'll sit down with you and do practice mock interviews with you, both traditional interviews as well as the MMI. Um, they'll review your application. They'll kind of like read through your personal statements. Um, and I, I can't, you know, for our school, it's incredibly important. You need to write well. And I'm just amazed at the amount of essays we get, which have grammar issues or typos or things like that. I mean, you're applying to medical school. This is a professional graduate program. And, and you're like turning in, I mean, I, people are misspelling the word pediatrics and surgery on their applications. <laughs> just blows me away. So that's the first trend I've kind of seen. I've seen kind of the specialization and then more. So I can totally tell when someone who works with their pre-med office and they have a really nice application versus someone I can tell that did not. And they kind of miss what we're looking for. And, and their application is kind of put together haphazardly or at the last minute. And, and so what I've seen is the pre-med offices are, are working very hard at the very beginning into identifying the students who are interested in medicine and mentoring them for their three, four years of undergrad and helping them really prepare a really professional um, appropriate application to medical school. The second thing I've noticed, going back to you mentioning the MCAT, um, so the MCAT is changing in 2015. Um, the, anyone who takes the MCAT nowadays is taking the 1991 version. They've already gotten rid of the writing sample. So again, that's why medical schools are putting more emphasis on the writing uh, when you kind of apply to medical school. Um, and so they're going to create a whole new section. And this new section is going to be focused more on behavioral sciences. And I'm talking like psychology, sociology, anthropology, things like that. And so I often get questions from applicants like, why, why are we testing? Why is this important? And the way I think about it is, is that um, in medicine, there are these core bedrock principles. Um, you know, no one should be smoking. Uh, we should all be taking our medications as prescribed. We should all be eating healthier or engaging in some type of exercise activity, right? So we know these to be true. The hard part is, the really hard part is, is helping your patients get to those points. And so in our medical school curriculum, as I'm sure at other medical schools, there's more and more emphasis on the behavioral sciences. How do you work with your patients developing a smoking cessation plan? How do you encourage them to exercise more and eat healthier? And so in individual uh, doctor-patient appointments, there are these behavioral plans are being introduced. And as a physician, you're being required to kind of emphasize this more. So we're kind of testing this at the front end. And I think that's why there's a greater emphasis on the social sciences. And so I've noticed when I talk to different undergrads, they've seen a surge in interest from all the pre-med students going into you know, psychology, sociology, anthropology, not only to prepare for the MCAT, but also recognizing that the curriculum at our level is shifting. And they're going to be, just like they take like anatomy as an undergrad, it prepares them uh, to take it as a, uh, as a medical student. Same thing with psychology, so, uh, sociology, anthropology, things like that. So those are the two big trends I've seen, a greater emphasis on the behavioral sciences and more of a reliance, a robust growth in the pre-medical offices, at least out here in the West. Okay. With a lot of the changes in the economy here in the U.S., there seems to be a large influx of non-traditional students. How, how do you see non-traditional students fitting in with uh, going in, back into medical school and training? And, and do you think they have a, a leg up on a traditional student? Um, in certain cases, yes. I mean, it's funny you asked that question, Ryan. I mean, um, I, I, so I'm out here at the University of Utah. I would say we're kind of the land of non-traditional students. The average age of our matriculating student is about usually a year to year and a half older than across uh, the nation. Um, and there's a lot of socioeconomic, uh, you know, reasons for that, as you mentioned. Um, I, 
you know, I, I think our, our, our emissions committee loves maturity. They love the wisdom. And so when you say a leg up, I think there is a certain degree of that. I think more and more individuals, when I'm inter- going out there on the tr- college trail, I'm kind of hearing more and more about these gap years, which I'm sure you've talked about in your previous podcasts, where people graduate sco- college, um, they kind of have an idea what they want to do, and they kind of realize it's a long path, so they pursue a different, you know, they just go down a different road. They become a teacher, Teach for America, as, as I'm seeing more and more applicants who do Teach for America try, coming into medical school. Um, they do a Peace Corps. They, they go on an LDS Mormon mission. There, there's all these things that people are starting to do before they apply to medical school. And as a general principle, I think our committees really enjoy that. I think there's a certain... Um, there's a maturity that you kind of develop, you see on the interview day and when they write more passionately about these life experiences. Um, so I definitely see more and more non-traditional students applying. And I do think they have a, a leg up in certain ways. Um, the harder part is, and this is where it gets a little bit dicier, is that um, going back to activities, you know, if you're applying as a non-traditional, you know, in your late 20s, I think you're in really good territory. What I'm seeing more and more people in their 30s and even early 40s, and by that time, uh, you usually have a partner, marriage, uh, kids might be involved. And so when you start looking at people's applications, uh, you know, compare, like, if you're looking at community service and, and physician chat, all those different things, it's a really struggle for those type of applicants who are non-traditional to go head-to-head against applicants in their mid to late 20s who have more free time to kind of fulfill these different areas. And so I think that's a constant um, tension within admission committees, and I've talked to other um, schools about this, and they all kind of recognize that this is happening, um, and we try to be as fair as possible. But I do see a lot of people who have become lawyers, who are business bankers, who have done their job for 5, 10, 15 years, and they always kind of had that, that itch. They want to go to med school, and they want to scratch that itch. And so they start pulling together those applications, and, and sometimes they're really good, and sometimes they're not so good. And so I think it's just kind of an individual basis. So I tell everyone... Um, at our medical school, um, we pride ourselves on having non-traditionals. We actually have a medical student spouse association, which I'm not sure if that exists at other medical schools because about half our student body is, about, is married at any given time. Um, and so it's open to both men and women. Um, I, I've heard of rumors of babysit, babysitting co-ops that have sprung up. So uh, I think our medical school is really good at attracting non-traditionals. That's interesting. Let's talk about what you're doing with your podcast. You have your own podcast. Why Why did you start a podcast? Well, I've no like, so the question is like, why did I start my own podcast? I've noticed like there's just this, this craving for information. And then when I would go visit, when, so every year I go out and visit all the local colleges in Utah and, and most in Idaho. All right. And then, so I would do a presentation and I would do my best to answer all their questions, but inevitably there's always questions I don't get to or I don't think of. And when my presentation would end, I would have like 20, 30 people deep would just wait in line to talk to me. And, um, and sometimes I would get the same question again and again. And a lot of times it's like, why should I choose the you? Or what about this situation? What about that situation? And there is just this craving for knowledge. And I thought, like, you know what? I like podcasts. I'm, I'm a big NPR fan. I love listening to podcasts. I love have some sports podcasts I like. And, and going back to our curriculum, we actually podcast all our lectures. You know, so th- this kind of, like, way of learning I know is out there. 
So I made a decision and talking to, you know, the people in admissions and the dean's office is like, why don't I just start podcasting and interview, you know, a bunch of people who are affiliated with the U, interview a bunch of pre-medical advisors, have them talk about their programs because they're, they, they like the support I'm giving them and trying to help their programs be as strong as they can be. And let me just talk to current med students because for a lot of our students, they never interacted with students. You know, there's this weird kind of divide like, you know, oh, you're a med student. I, I can't possibly ask you these questions. So I decided to just kind of centralize that knowledge and start podcasting. And um, so it's been incredibly positive so far. Um, I've gotten really good feedback. Um, I try to put as much information as I can. Um, it's a learning process, as I'm sure you're aware, Ryan, that, uh, you know, it's kind of hard at the beginning, but as you do more and more of them, it's kind of like, you know, see one, do one, teach one, kind of the same principle. I feel like I'm doing a much better job in my own interviews. But for me, it's just providing information because what my, what aches my heart is, is that um, there are people out there that are interested in medical school that maybe don't work with their pre-med office or, or they go to a college university you know, in the Midwest or the East Coast who doesn't really have an affiliation with us or doesn't, have a, doesn't really know us that well. And they are unsure of the process and they're unsure of what we look for or, or who we are. So my, why, why my heart aches is because I want to give the exact same information to them as someone who I did a presentation to at a local college here. So that was kind of the genesis of that. I just want to provide equal information to everyone. Um, and I, I, to me, it's been an incredible learning tool, too, because I've learned so much about our, our, our curriculum, our hospital, different people's lives. I mean, I interviewed, you know, like I'm trying to interview some of the lesser known residency programs like PMNR, physical medicine rehab. You know, I remember during my med school days, like, oh, you know, what's this PMNR thing? I, I learned about that very late in the process. And so I'm trying to get just again provide information. So my target audiences are pre-medical students, obviously. My second is current medical students. And that's why I'm going all around to the different residency program directors, and I'm asking them, what do you look for in applicants? How what, can applicants come and rotate? Uh, you know, do you, do you look favorably if someone rotates in, in our hospital on your service? And, and things like that, because a lot of students come to me, like, oh, Dr. Chan, thank you so much for doing that podcast about ophthalmology. I want to, do an op- I want to be an ophthalmologist. And I didn't realize I need to start doing X, Y, and Z. So, so, that's kind of, so I use it as an educational tool just to kind of have a consistent, clear message to all the people that listen. So is that the same same reason why you started, Ryan? I know you, you've been doing it for a little bit it longer. Is. Than that. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like we have pretty much the same mission. So mm-hmm. uh, I, it started very similar as an Air Force member. I had lots of young airmen coming up to me and asking, "I, I want to go back to medical school. What do I need to do?" And I would sit down and talk to them for about an hour and a half. And mm-hmm. <laughs> after several times, I realized that this kind of information really isn't out there in the places where. The information is, it's a little bit more hostile environment online, and, and the information's a little bit harder to get. So I, I myself loved listening to podcasts, and I said, why not? Mm-hmm. And 60, yeah. six weeks later, <laughs> we're, we're here. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah, appreciate you reaching out to me. I Yeah, I would love, you know, once uh, we have the technological capabilities on our end, I would love to have you on our podcast yeah. um, and just talk about your experiences. Because, like, you know, your experience with uh, the military, the Air Force, is not uncommon out here. I mean, Utah has a very strong history of, uh, uh, you know, being very dedicated to armed forces. So I'm getting more and more questions yeah. from applicants, especially, like, looking how, you know, I love the question, Dr. Chan, like, you know, med school is really expensive. You know, is it worth it to join the armed forces? And then I start getting, then I start getting into the weeds. I'm not really sure, like, you know, the difference between, you know, USIS versus like ROTC and all that stuff. And so I would love to have you on our podcast. That'd be great. Where can people find your podcast? 
Um, so right now it's on iTunes. Um, it's called Talking and Missions and Med Student Life. Um, we, there is a link to, uh, you know, on our home website, our admissions website, there is a link. But for the vast majority of people, it's just easier if I steer them to iTunes. So just go to iTunes and put Talking and Missions and Med Student Life, and you'll see like a little, you know, University of Utah like, uh, logo pop up. And that's me, so just click on it, and then you can subscribe to it. And my goal is to do, you know, try to get a new one once a week, and we've been kind of maintaining that for now. And, and yeah, it's, it's really been a positive experience. What's, what has been your favorite episode? Um, I, my favorite episode, and I'm still kind of learning how to do this, when, you know, like, I, I, I again, like, people think uh, being medicine, like, you're a doctor, you're very busy, and you have all this stuff going on, which is true. But I like it when we kind of go off on tangents and kind of talk about fun stuff. And people can realize how much fun it is to be a doctor and how much, um, you know, how interacting with your colleagues or all these different people is just so enlightening and, and just so much fun. And so I think my favorite episodes is like when I think, all right, we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z, but then the discussion really gets going. And then we talk about, you know, A, B, and C. And then we kind of like learn things about each other. And then I can share that kind of discussion uh, with others. And so, um, so I'm trying to, I, you know, I'm trying to move away from a question and answer format, which I, I think, do think that's important to, to have some guidelines, but moving to more of just like having a fun discussion about life yeah. and how being a doctor impacts that and what it means to be a physician nowadays. And so those are my, my favorite ones. I also, I love interviewing our own medical students too, because, you know, I, I have my own particular view of the curriculum, you know, sitting in the dean's office. But then when I talk to the med students, they kind of fill me in on these other things. And I just love talking about that because like they're, they're, they're experiencing it firsthand. So, so I would think generally my favorite ones are when we go off on tangents. And at any time I talk to the med students, it's really fun. I mean, I did a podcast with uh, one of our uh, third years named Kyle. And we just, and apparently it came out in the middle of the discussion that he's like, known as the fashion guru of his class. So we just started talking male fashion and I just learned a whole bunch from him. And I love that. So, and then we kind of went like, okay, so when you wear scrubs, this is the official protocol, you know, it's like, all right, when you're in a different hospital, you can't, you can't, can't wear like the blue scrubs where you're supposed to be wearing green scrubs and you can't mix, mix up the tops and the bottoms. You know, you're going to get in trouble as a med student if you pull that off. So we just kind of started talking about the general rules of wearing scrubs and it was just a really good discussion. That's awesome. That sounds like fun. So for all of you listening to my podcast, go listen to uh, Dr. Chan's podcast. You'll get a lot of great information. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it more dedicated towards the University of Utah, or are you looking to kind of reach out and, and do more broad information as well? I would say half and half. I would say half the podcasts are more definitely geared to University of Utah, but the other half I think would apply to anyone. Um, and... You know, I'm, that's why I'm getting really enthusiastic responses from the different residency program directors because we get a lot of students who come to our med school for fourth-year electives or who are applying to our residency programs, so we're drawing them from all across the nation. And so, you know, I, I think it's a service primarily for students in Utah. They kind of know me, but I have no problems going outside Utah. So I would say about half the podcasts are, are more Utah-centric and the other half are just more like, you know, just for anyone. All right, can can we wrap up with some advice to a, a pre-med student out there who's dying to go to medical school but maybe started off their their pre-med path a little bit rocky and, and is questioning whether or not they can get in and what they should be doing? Um, so I know it's probably a coined phrase, uh, but I always say follow your passion. But let me give you an example. Um, what our committee loves is people who go out and make the world a better place. And 
And I, I use the phrase branching out, and I love it when individuals branch out and go outside their comfort zone. So what our community loves to see is, um, you know, making the world a better place, start volunteering um, at a homeless shelter, a hospice, or, or some entity, and then sticking with that. And then as you get um, more experience and the people who you work with see that leadership uh, within you. They see what a great person you are. You are starting to give them more responsibility within an organization. So our, our committee loves it when people go outside their comfort zone, they go do something that they're a little unsure of. Because when you think about, you know, during our training, right, I mean, I can't remember how many times I was placed outside my comfort zone and I had this personal growth. You know, I had this insight, oh, you know, I was really anxious and then I did this, it wasn't so bad, and now I'm really thriving in it. And our committee loves that. And so going outside your comfort zone, engaging in an activity, making the world a better place, and then branching out, kind of accept that responsibility, kind of grow an organization. So, like, let me give you an example, like Habitat for Humanity. More and more people, I have no idea how to build a home, but, like, more and more people are doing Habitat Humanity, kind of building homes in the community, and then they kind of realize, wow, this is kind of fun. I like this. And then I've seen people who have gotten into our medical school that they get this you know, bug, you know, like, oh, I, I like building homes. This is awesome. And then family, you know, when you get to see the family move in, that's great. And then Habitat for Humanity sees this leadership, like, okay, this person's really good. We're going to make them a foreman or a role person. And then they decide to, you know, send them to a different area country, or maybe to Central South America to do the same thing. And then we can kind of see that growth as they branch out. And, oh, hey, they got sent down to Mexico to help build houses. And then they got in contact with this school. And the school kind of needed help with supplies or something like that. And we see this person branching out from that original activity. And we just love that. So anyone who's thinking about wanting to go to med school, it's not about checking the boxes. It's about making the world a better place, showing us what you can do. And we see that skill of branching out being perfect for a doctor. And that's what we kind of expect our physicians to do. All right, folks, that again was Dr. Chan from the University of Utah, Assistant Dean of Admissions, and by the way, host of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. Go find his podcast. It's on iTunes. I give you my blessing to go to go listen to it and subscribe to it. There is a ton of information out there that he is delivering, and uh, he's, he's got a, a lot of great guests for you to hear from. So, Talking Admissions and Med Student Life in iTunes. Go listen to it. Find us on Twitter. We're at Medical School HQ. If you haven't done so yet, we would love for you to go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and leave us an honest rating and review. It only takes a minute and helps us immensely in iTunes. You can also do the same if you listen through Stitcher or, yeah, through Stitcher. You can uh, leave us a rating and review there as well. If you have any questions for Dr. Chan, have any comments on today's show, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash 68, as in episode 68, and leave us a comment there. And don't forget, go to freemcatgift.com and download that great 30-plus page report on everything you need to know about the MCAT. I truly hope that you got a lot of great information out of today's podcast. And as always, I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters.